2: From KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump and Governor Newsom met yesterday to talk about the root causes of California's wildfires. Newsom said climate change is the biggest factor. Trump blamed poor forest management, totally dismissing the role of climate. While the president is wrong about climate change, it is true that forest management has a role to play. This hour, we're going to talk about prescribed burns and how landowners and public agencies can better manage our forests. And open spaces, so that when fires inevitably come, they don't do as much damage. How controlled burns can rain in fires and prevent them from destroying so many homes and lives—that's all next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny we're going to talk this hour about how to keep california's forests healthy and reduce fires and wildfires certainly seem to be getting bigger more frequent and more dangerous experts say that won't change this season or next unless the state and federal government spend billions of dollars more on thinning forests and making california communities more resilient to fire that would mean a big shift for foresters and firefighters who have spent the past century working to preserve timber and beating back the flames but people who study fire say that shift in thinking is long overdue. And we're going to talk about what it would take to rework how California manages wildfires and forests. Joining us first is Danielle Venton, KQED science reporter. Welcome, Danielle. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you. Well, yesterday, the president had a two-hour stop at an airfield near Sacramento. We met with Governor Newsom and spoke with him respectfully about the plumbing of the world and how it's changed and how science and climate change are real or the science that tells us about climate change is real president wasn't buying it, I guess, was he?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, It was, it was sort of remarkable, you know, even in the president's remarks to reporters uh, just as he got off the plane, you know, he maintained that forest management is the way to deal with California's wildfires. You know, there's, there's no doubt that there's some truth to that. And uh, governor Gavin Newsom said that that was an area of common ground between the state and federal leadership but Newsom definitely used the opportunity to point out that most forested land in the state is owned by the federal government. And so, if the federal government wants to improve forest management, uh, that would be welcome and they have the opportunity. Um, he also pointed out that just 3% of forested land in California belongs to the state. Um, and Newsom and other state officials, um, notably the Secretary for Natural Resources, Wade Crowfoot, pointed out that scientific consensus clearly shows that climate change is making the state drier, hotter, and more vulnerable to big fires. Um, There was sort of this remarkable moment where Trump said, it'll start getting cooler, just watch. And, And Wade Crowfoot said, I wish the science agreed with you. Um, And after that Newsom in in an incredibly polite way said that climate change was an observable fact in California and he asked that the president Respect the difference of opinion on this fundamental issue um, to which Trump very calmly responded Absolutely, Uh, I do want to go back to one moment um, Which was the president's response to our reporter Katie Orr on the politics team uh, asking what role the president thought climate change was playing in these massive fires and he said that he thought it was uh, forest management But he went on to say that forest management is a problem We can do something about but he seemed to imply that taming climate change Would be too hard because you have to get a lot of countries to change their ways. He talked about India and Russia And uh, I want to point out that India and Russia are part of the Paris climate agreement which is the current best framework for achieving global emissions reductions. And the president has taken steps to pull the U.S. out of that agreement.
2: Well, he also talked about nations like Austria and Finland, where forest management seems to be working better than it is presumably in California. But when you mentioned Wade Crawford, uh, secretary of California's Natural Resources Agency, talking about the danger and ignoring the science, uh, President Trump said, I don't think science knows, actually. Uh, I think that's a direct quote, isn't
1: it that is a that is a quote, and that was a that was a remarkable moment that um you know took some people uh it was shocking, even though we know that this is a president that casts um casts doubt on scientists routinely it was a it was a remarkable moment
2: It's a remarkable moment in so many ways because uh the president just as as respectful as the governor was and complimentary and saying you know we have a lot in common, we've known each other for quite a while. Uh, President Trump uh, said absolutely, and then he kind of shifted gears uh, when uh, the Secretary of California's Natural Resources came on the scene and started talking about science and, you know, said that remarkable thing. I don't think science knows, actually. Um, And this is allowed for a political response from uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, Vice President Biden has turned this into uh, essentially saying that the president uh, uh, is, um, (laughs) he called him an arsonist, actually
1: that's right yes we heard we heard um candidate biden come out very strongly yesterday in a speech for climate change policy and accusing the president of not doing more and saying that if we have four more years of someone who denies fundamental science that we can expect much more of america to burn
2: and i I want to give you uh some kudos for uh i was following your twitter feed and um, uh, actually, we need some levity at this time. And you said uh, that um, the idea that this is not climate change as well is sort of like saying, uh, well, l- let me ask you what you put in your Twitter feed about donuts and six packs.
1: Oh, yes. Well, I said that, you know, what I really want to come out of this fire season is for us all to be able to recognize that, you, you, that these bad fires are caused both by intensifying climate change and forest mismanagement, and to just say it's one or the other is like saying, "Oh, I'm I'm gaining all this weight, but it's because of my donut habit and not because I drink a six pack of beer every night." That's yeah. I, I appreciate
2: that. Sense. I appreciated that humor. I think. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for being with us, Danielle. I appreciate your being with us this morning. Absolutely. That's Daniel Venton, KQBD science reporter. And let me tell you who's joining us for the rest of the hour. We want to welcome Lenya Quinn-Davidson, who is a area fire advisor with UC Cooperative Extension. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. Well,
0: thank you. Nice to be here.
2: Nice to have you. And also nice to have Scott Stevens back with us on Forum, professor of fire science at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley. Good to have you, Scott.
3: Happy to be here.
2: And we're also happy to have Craig Thomas with us, director of the Fire Restoration Group. Craig Thomas, welcome. Good morning to you.
4: Good morning. Thank you for inviting us all.
2: Glad to have you all. And uh, Scott Stevens, let me begin with you. And let me begin by just talking about the need for per- prescribed fires, which uh, have to be carefully planned, presumably. But really, uh, the time has come and uh, both climate change and forest management uh, have to be somehow integrated together. I think that's pretty much what the wisdom dictates, isn't it?
3: It is, it is, you know, when we look at the record of just how our forests have changed, people have been talking about this since the 1960s and we're taking kind of forest conditions forward into a changing climate regime that makes it worse. And our actions have to be to you know deal with the fundamentals. And one of the fundamentals is the, how the fuels are actually distributed, prescribed burning, restoration thinning, and the other piece I think is just to get Human communities better prepared for the of fire.
2: Well, how do we get landowners and public agencies uh, on board uh, on this, and particularly to manage better? I mean, we've got such a backlog here, don't we?
3: We have a huge backlog, and you're right. You know, about
2: two or three weeks ago, we did
3: have that signing of the Forest Service chief and Governor Newsom to say they wanted to do 1 million acres of treatment by 2025 annually. That's a great goal. It's an ambitious goal, and I applaud it. But we have to take decisive steps. You know, if we don't take decisive steps, man, we're just going to be looking in the mirror and just saying, oh, my goodness. So we've got to make a difference now.
2: It's not too late?
3: I don't think it's too late, but it is an inflection point. You know, it really is an inflection point. I think we just carry all this, um, you know, force management challenges forward. And then we are getting warmer. We're getting drier, just like you just said. But it is a point that it's not like the 1980s or 90s. We have to act. I think we do. And I actually am hopeful.
2: And you're optimistic, aren't you?
3: I am. I am optimistic about it because I, I, we know what to do. And the science is so clear on this. It helps us actually make better decisions. So I am hopeful, but I'm also a little
5: bit worried.
2: Well, one can't help being worried. And let me bring uh, Lenny Quinn-Davidson into this, who's Area Fire Advisor with the UC Cooperative Extension. And uh, let's talk about, uh, from your perspective, what really is especially Uh, ought to be focused on or lasered in on. And we're talking about uh, big issues of certification on the one hand, uh, if we're doing prescribed fires, uh, which COVID-19 has really to some extent uh, interfered with, but also insurance. Talk about those two things because they're really central.
0: Yeah, well, what you're speaking to is some recent policy change that happened in the state of California um, around certifying private burn bosses. And that's something we... We never really thought we'd see in California a whole program for private people who want to get more involved in prescribed fire and want to train and, and become really skilled and then be able to lead um, projects on private land. So we had a bill passed in 2018 called Senate Bill 1260, and it mandated the development of a private burn boss certification program for California. Um, They'd offer some liability relief for people doing this work and more cooperation with CAL FIRE. Um, but COVID is definitely, you know, threatening to derail it a little bit because it's that program's supposed to roll out next year. But it requires a lot of in-person classroom time and training that I don't know that we'll be able to, um, to offer if we still have restrictions around COVID.
2: And what about the the Environmental Compliancy Act? Uh, I mean, it shuts uh, down a lot of uh, prescribed burnings, doesn't it?
0: Well, it just depends on where you're working. I mean, certainly if you're on federal land, like all the federal lands that that we have in California, um, the National Environmental Protection Act does slow projects that can you know, complicate the planning. Um, That's also true for for state projects that CAL FIRE leads with the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, For private lands, it can be a little different. If you're a private landowner trying to manage your property with prescribed fire, Um, you're not necessarily as as tied into those environmental compliance laws.
2: You have to develop a smoke management plan, though. I mean, air quality rules are are pretty strongly for prescribed fires uh, enforced, aren't they?
0: Yes, air quality is a huge deal for prescribed fire and something that we have to think about year round and secure permits for and develop smoke management plans for. So that's something I do a lot in my job is work with landowners to try to understand that and navigate that process, because it is it is pretty complicated and can be onerous, but it's not insurmountable.
2: And you say it's not about the acreage, it's about the nature of the fire. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, well, I've been getting a lot of um, media calls where people are asking, what's the target acreage we need to get to with prescribed fire in California to solve the the problem? And I think it's really important for us to know that there's not a, a certain acreage that we need to aspire to as much as a vision and a strategic layout of projects and really thinking about targeted work.
2: Well if you've just joined us, we're talking about uh, prescribed fires and what to do about uh, the terrible situation we have here with megafires in California and particularly with prescribed burnings. Uh, it goes back actually to Native Americans and indigenous people who did it right and we can learn a lot from them and we may get into that in this hour. But in the meantime, if you want to join us. And we'll talk in a moment with Craig Thomas. Please feel free to give us a call now at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, and again, we're talking about fire management and also fire management, or forest management, excuse me, fire management as well, because it's tied together and certainly tied together in a very integral way with climate change. Uh, Scott Stevens with us and uh, Lenya Quinn-Davidson and Craig Thomas, who is director of the Fire Restoration Group. And uh, Craig, your group is all about essentially integrating fire policy with fire ecology and actually promoting science-based management uh, of fire and forests in California, uh, again, not too late for us?
4: Um, thank you, Michael. No, it's never too late because every decision we make around forest management and the restoration of fire matters no matter what conditions we're facing. And so one of the key questions is when I hear the mismanagement word used, I, you, know, you know, I kind of back off of that because our culture, all of us, have been misunderstanding the landscape we live in in California for over 150 years. You know, we've we uh, started out targeting the large old growth fire resilient trees that we wish we had a lot more of them back on this landscape. We tried to exclude fire and suppress fire well over 100 years ago and that has continued on over the decades in spite of all the good work by my uh, partners on this panel and their colleagues, I mean, Scott Stevens, Malcolm North, um, you know, a significant number of fire scientists have been pointing the way out of this for a long time. And it includes, you know, that the stand conditions we have today that are strongly fire excluded because fire has been suppressed across millions of acres of California for decades and decades. But it also matters in we, when we have a fire, what we do next, Um, It matters very much about do we approach these landscapes after an event like the ones we're seeing, and do we decide to reforest back in a very uniform, tightly spaced tree plantation model, or do we listen to the research that suggests that we need to manage for resilience and heterogeneity because fire is already telling us and has been telling us for a long time that uniformity of stand structure, trees closely together where their crowns are connected and fire can just roar from one tree to another is not a successful strategy. So anywhere along the way, we can hop in and say, okay, we're going to start managing these landscapes like fire matters in, you know, one of the five or six of the most naturally fire prone landscapes on Earth.
2: Well, that means prescribed burns, uh, and they, but they need to be planned and they need to be strategically mapped out. And they can also uh, present liability risks and, and uh, for landowners, especially to prescribe burns, uh, to do prescribed burns. So uh, let, let's just talk about what I think your group has been focusing on as the key to all this, which is resilience. What do you mean by that?
4: Well, what what I mean by that, and this is well-defined in scientific literature, um, and generally what I mean is when you're looking at a landscape of a forested landscape and a disturbance occurs, and disturbance isn't a bad word. uh, Disturbance can be wind, it can be uh, hail, it can be decomposition. we're talking about fire today so when a fire disturbance happens and you have a resilient landscape then the component parts of that landscape that we recognize as supposed to be there you know the things that are supposed to be there are generally still recognizable in their composition and distribution and function after the event happens so in other words you don't have you know a hundred thousand acres or you know a mass fire that Uh, completely eliminates all of the forest structure, changes the composition uh, and really sets things back. You have fire that works to benefit and foster resilience in those those systems where it happens. So it's not about big uncharacteristic change. It's about a system that is recognizable after the disturbance happens.
2: And again, Craig Thomas is director of the Fire Restoration Group. And actually, I should mention that he saved his own house near Placerville back in, what was it, Craig, 1995?
4: 1994 on August 7th 94. at 2 p.m. <laughs> wow, okay.
2: you got it very located very specific there. Let me start, start bringing some callers on here. And let's start with you, Bob. Join us. You're on the air. Good morning. Yes. Hello? Hi, Bob. Yes, go ahead, please.
6: Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um sure. I would just like to first state that uh, I'm a resident in uh, Jenner, where the Russian River meets the Pacific Ocean, and uh, the whole time that we had uh, fires, which came very close to Jenner, we had redwoods that were being transported down uh, the highway that were being cut, and my neighbors and I couldn't believe it. Here we had a a major fire, and yet we had uh, uh, healthy trees being forested. Uh, and with that, um, I remember when uh, President George W. Bush was, um, when he was in office, there was the Healthy Forest Initiative, where uh, they prompted foresters to go and cut trees under the premise that it was to um, make um, forest um, more healthier. And it turned out, as a lot of uh, people knew it was uh, to be, that the healthy trees were taken and the sickened trees were uh, left. And it kind of created um, a problem on on top of a problem. And um, I'll uh, take... um, the comments um, off the air. Thank you. Yeah,
2: thank you for your uh, raising this whole issue. Scott Stevens, let me go to you on this. Let me just ask you kind of an addendum to this, uh, an important question, because some are saying uh, maybe thinning forests is a way to go as an alternative, uh, using the chainsaws as opposed to the prescribed burns.
3: No, it's true. When you think about exactly what you're trying to do, you know, the key really is, is what do you want to achieve and what do you want to leave, not what you want to take. But if you can actually go in with the idea that you want to do a restoration idea like Craig Thomas talked about, thinking about creating resilience, gappiness of forest structure, larger trees, species that are more able to deal with climate change and drought. So you're going to come in with an idea. This is what we want to achieve in terms of the outcome. And then how do we get there? So then you can think about restoration, thinning, prescribed burning, even managed wildfire. But you've got to come up from the fundamentals of saying we want to achieve this versus we want to uh, take out something right out from
7: the back.
2: Lenny Quinn-Davidson, you've been involved in prescribed burns up in Humboldt. Uh, Can you talk about just how successful they are in the big picture or how much they lead us toward the necessity of prescribed burns, understanding them?
0: Yeah, um, I've been involved in prescribed burns here in Humboldt and also in other places around the state and the country. And um, I think it's important to understand that prescribed fire is valuable not only as a fuels um, reduction tool, you know, for reducing wildfire hazard, but also for all different kinds of objectives that we really care about and habitat restoration and invasive species control and cultural reasons. So um, we use prescribed fire here in Humboldt to meet all kinds of different objectives. And we've had great success with it, including fuels reduction around homes and around communities
2: and craig thomas i'm struck by the notion again of when you talk about resiliency you're talking about advantages of uh, banding together in communities uh, and really doing prescribed burns on that basis uh not only in terms of jobs but also bringing communities closer together creating community cohesion i mean there's a real argument there
4: absolutely it's um it's one of the most powerful things i've witnessed in my 40 years of living Um, in a wooey forested landscape, where people have been coming together in collaborative efforts around the state now for significant period of time, joining forces, building understanding is one of the first things, like really, it used to burn here every five to 10 years, you know, people, (laughs) depending on where you are and what elevation and what kind of forest, you know, just building that understanding that fire was the natural process that limited these fuels and the density of smaller trees and that we need to get back there I, I i want to agree with scott and and say that you know this isn't fire alone We've gone way too far in terms of allowing the distribution and density of trees go to the point where we need to have thinning, particularly around communities where, you know, I I make it a point of never asking my friends in the fire community to light fire where they risk their careers or risk burning a town down. We have to do some thinning work. I spent $6,000 on my own seven acres just a couple of years ago working with um, some arborist friends of mine to get my landscape and my trees in the position I want them in um, after the fire that we had in 94 that we mentioned. So it's, you know, I own three chainsaws. I also own a drip torch, um, and, but it's doing the right work. And Scott makes a very good point. You know, it's resilience is our product. Resilience gives us everything else that if we're graceful about how we live here, we get to have some clean water and clean air and maybe some saw logs and some recreational activities. We get to have that. But if we focus on that only and not resilience building across these landscapes, then we're going to stay on this merry-go-round nightmare that we're on right now forever.
2: Yeah. And hope that we uh, definitely get off this merry-go-round. Let me get another caller on here. Jeff joins us next. Jeff. Good morning.
7: yeah. Hey, this is Jeff from Georgetown. Um, there are a couple of ships passing each other in the dark here. I'm going to try to organize these thoughts so I can get it all out in a hurry. Uh, first off, we all know that we don't want to be wantonly dumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We got in the forest kind of like four levels of problem, little brush, big brush, little trees, big trees. Big trees are, are, are what we're looking for, little trees can be harvested and they can make money to some degree and then the brush is the problem 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 and we've let it get out of control since the native people were controlling it when we're talking about burning we're talking about a dangerous process that obviously is releasing unbelievable amounts of carbon dioxide there is another process which actually is working right here now and that's called cogeneration So we can pay guys to go out in the forest and masticate the brush. And when they masticate the brush, they've taken care of the brush, but they've got nothing to do with it. So they burn it. Okay, we've done the carbon dioxide thing again. But there are also plants scattered throughout the state that take that brush, shift, and generate electricity for it. So at least then... You're burning it in a generation plant, and you're producing electricity with it. Now, here's the problem. It's a little bit of a negative cost. My personal experience with that is I tried to do a thinning logging here on our place, and I actually had to pay to get chip vans out to the cogeneration plant. But hold it. Go back and look. We're paying enormous amounts of money to subsidize people's solar panels, to subsidize the batteries on the wall. Probably the federal government is indirectly subsidizing the price of oil through free oil leases and all that stuff or whatever. That's not my business. If we were to subsidize some of the cost of electricity coming out of these cogeneration plants, the loggers, who need more to do anyway? can go in there, they can masticate the brush, they can put it in chip fans, they can run it down to the cogen plants, we get electricity back, we get the brush removed, the loggers make money, and the state doesn't get involved doing something that it's really not going to be good at and not qualified to do. If the state ever gets involved in mastication programs, there's going to be...
2: (laughs) All right, Jeff, you're getting into uh, a whole other realm here. I want to get a response to what you've just outlined here, though. It's a kind of paradigm almost. Scott Stevens, you want to react?
3: Yes, you know, I believe that, you know, taking um, biofuel materials out of some areas of the forest is actually a, a very good idea. And it's something that can actually contribute to forest health. Again, if we think about what we want to leave afterwards, um, certainly there are a lot of areas of the Sierra Nevada and elsewhere where machines just don't have access. So that's a real challenge. And those areas, really, the fire is going to be the tool, the only tool we really have. But the caller's correct. We could do better. The idea of subsidy is really an interesting one. You know, Senator Feinstein actually has a bill released about four weeks ago in the U.S. Senate. And actually in that bill is quite a subsidy package for bioenergy plants um, located in California. So I would agree. I think it's part of the tools in the toolbox. It's not going to be able to, you know, get the majority of acres, but it certainly can have an impact.
2: Scott, uh, I want to get to uh, a little bit of history here with you because you were quoted uh, in an article in Forbes. It was all about Michael Schellenberger and, uh, Essentially what you're saying is that uh, there were millions of acres that were burned annually before the Europeans arrived and the Native American elders uh, uh, say they burned oak woodlands every, uh, what, two to three years really. Um, So we've had suppressed fires for over a hundred years and uh, it hasn't worked. Uh, It goes back to um, the big fires that were occurring in 1910 um, that were huge and that Uh, We're talking about actually a fire that that went across states like uh, Idaho and Montana, thought to be from coal-powered trains. I think that were spewing spewing out, excuse me, cinder uh, into the forests. And uh, the idea was we got to make the forests, we got to protect the forests, got to get rid of the fires and suppress them in any way. We had people like William James and Teddy Roosevelt uh, on board on that, Uh, and and it's been with us for for about a century.
3: No, you're absolutely right. The history of just how we got to this point comes from those points, some pivot points early in our 1900s where people thought about, you know, how do we manage fire? And then it really was timber. People looked at the stands or the forest conditions at the time. Many foresters, early foresters, and said, my goodness, there's so much open space here. We can do better for the American public. We can grow more trees. We can then have more wood and then we could benefit our national forest. But it turned out there were actually some debates then, and some people said, no, that's the wrong idea. If we do that, eventually we're going to have problems. Even people in the 19-teens said that. And the Native Americans, you're absolutely right, the tribes of this state managed their land. They did it many different ways, but fire was the biggest tool. And this managed landscape, the stewardship of Native tribes, was fundamental to their culture and who they were. And I don't speak for the tribes whatsoever, but I do see them as sources of innovation, also of ways that we could go forward.
2: And they were displaced, too, in the early 1900s, uh, which had a lot to do with uh, some of the problems we have as well. But that's a whole other story. I want to get to some comments that are coming in. A couple of comments on Native American burn practices. Kyle writes, I believe that climate change may be the primary factor in our forest fires in the near future, but I do think people are underestimating the effect Native Americans had on shaping our forests with intentional burning. The forests have only been managed the way they are now for one or 200 years, so I see the fires as a clear consequence of this relatively Recent change, and Pam writes in our current state of affairs i 'm not in favor of controlled burns. I would like to hear from indigenous people who I would trust with this task and uh, I think it 's pretty clear that they were burning gas uh, grasses and shrubs and young trees, and these ground fires uh, uh, were pretty much keeping control of things uh, for quite some time. I, I want to read some more comments here and get some responses from our panel um, here 's a listener. Let me go to you on this if I may uh, lenya Quinn Davidson. George, who says, we don't understand the biological ecology of California, the chaparral, the redwoods, the extinct fire resistant specials, the imported unsuitable species. The Native Americans understood the California fire ecology. We don't understand it or worse, we refuse to understand.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful comment, and I think it's true. I think that one of the, um, the big problems that we have and that, you know, our current situation is a product of is our complete disconnect with the landscape and with fire as a process and as a fundamental shaping force of this place that, that we love and that we call home. So I think um, Indigenous fire practices are incredibly important for us to understand and to really try to grasp that connection and how people can be a part of, of the landscape and have a, um, a really positive role. And that's what excites me. Um, in the work that I do is trying to rebuild that culture of fire in California and trying to connect people better because we have so much to learn, but we have to pay attention and be willing to, to listen. And this
2: is the sort of thing that can really, uh, as I was saying before, to Craig Thomas can really build community and build cohesion in community can't it?
0: Absolutely, and that's what I see in in my work. I think prescribed fire. It's there's something so fundamentally human about the connection with fire, and we um, we're able to pull people from all different sides of the community to work together on prescribed fire. So, in the work that I do, I have you know conservative ranchers and old hippies and young college students and um, environmentalists, and these people can all work together toward a shared vision and on a shared project. I think that we're so desperate for those kinds of opportunities right now.
2: And indeed we are, and we will continue with more of your calls and emails. Stay tuned. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Just to give you, our listeners, some sense of the kind of scope and scale of what we're talking about here, there was a native sustainability project that said California would need to build, excuse me, to burn 20 million acres. That would be the size of Maine to restabilize. Uh, This is vast and this is challenging, uh, to put it mildly, and uh, that's really what we're dealing with here. Let me read a couple of comments. Uh, Sandy writes The National Forest Service owns property near my home in the Sierras. I offered to pay to have some of the trees that have crowns interlocking removed. They said, no, what's wrong with these people? And Joe says, if the federal government owns 58% of the forest land in California and the state owns uh, only 3%, why is Trump blaming California for forest mismanagement? What role has the federal government played in mismanagement over the years, and what role should they be playing now to create solutions? Can I go to you on that, Craig Thomas? Get your thoughts.
4: Certainly. I... um... Again, I, I get a little exercise when I when I hear things that sound like a, the blame game because I many you know I've had my battles with our federal agency and our landowner partners here for 30 years of my life. I also count a lot of those folks as friends and who are very smart and decent and well-meaning people, and they know exactly what needs to be done. Just like your guests here on, on the call in. So we, you know, we, we need to be careful about, are we building unity? Like Lainey is talking about, or are we building dissension? And I'm, I'm raising my hand for unity. So there's a lot of reasons, you know, we, we really didn't understand and we're very much commodity driven in the days of the forest service, literally up until the early 1990s. And during the Clinton administration, we started, hearing conversations in, in volumes of written literature about ecosystem management. Under the Obama administration, we got a new forest planning rule that governs the national forests across the whole nation. And it highlighted a term called ecological integrity. So those things are serious positive changes. Yes, back in the not so good old days, our plundering pioneer brethren we're targeting large old growth trees because all they were thinking about was the volume of wood they could get. Today, we think about that very differently. And, you know, we're aiming at the smaller diameter understory trees. It's not the only thing, but the key target is to break the continuity of fire from the surface to the ladders up. And so as it climbs up in the ladders, it's way up into the crowns of trees. So there's, you know, the. Forest Service is pretty focused on that to their credit Uh, I just want to encourage folks to be careful Uh, yes there's been mistakes we've misunderstood the landscape we live in for a very very long time it is turning around the Forest Service actually needs sustained increases in funding you know and we need you know the type of folks that do the restoration work that Scott and Lanier are talking about at all levels of government, trained, liability protected, doing meaningful work, and then maintaining that work. And so, I you know I can point to pieces of ground all over where I live, the national forests cross my one-lane road. Um, And yet, this requires the initiative of our government to understand the need to manage this treasure of public lands we have, and that we can't do it on thin air. And right now, you know, to me, it feels like there's a big effort to underfund the agency and then point at them that they can't do the work they need to do. And that I rail against that. That is that I'm very suspicious of that when I know the good people who work there and want to do the right thing.
2: I understand your concerns, and Craig Thomas again is director of the Fire Restoration Group. Let me bring another caller aboard with us, and we go next to, um, uh, is it uh, Anisia? Do I have your name right? Yes, it is. Yeah, hi. Yes, it
0: is. Yes, thank you. I just want to know, there's a lot of work to be done. Like you said, it's been a commodity-driven, forestry has been commodity-driven, our government is capitalism driven there's a lot of work how are we going to get the workers out there? Is it going to be prison slavery as usual? Because right now with all these fires, there's going to be, what, about seven years of work? And who's going to pay for these workers? Who's going to invest in this industry?
2: That's a very significant and I think central question. And I'd like to go to you on this, if I could, Lenya Quinn-Davidson, and also bring up something that was uh, brought to my attention in an article in ProPublica, which I would certainly recommend for those who want to learn more about this, uh, it was by Liz Weil, whom we know from Forum for many years. And uh, she was writing uh, essentially about the cost of fire suppression in California. It's been very profitable and very expensive, but she raises a question about how necessary it is. Cal Fire has gone up hundreds of millions really uh, through the years. And there are huge amounts that are spent on planes and helicopters dropping uh, to, uh, to save trees and, and wilderness where maybe burning might've been better. Um, There's a lot, in other words, of the cost for crews and infrastructure. This is uh, an extra time for firefighters. This is something that could be scaled back when more money could be or more revenue could be put into what we're talking about here. Can I get your thoughts on that, Lenya?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question about workforce and, um, you know, who, what is that workforce going to look like? How will it be funded? Um, I think, this is an area that we need some radical shifts in the way that we think about about fire and fuels management, and you know the time of year, and the fact that we can't put all of our eggs in one basket and just be putting all the investment into one agency or one type of workforce. I think we really need to focus on um, yes, directing a lot more money toward this issue, but also directing that money toward the communities and the places that are. Um, that are living it. So we need to build community resilience and community capacity, and not just agency capacity around fire and prescribed fire. So So when you say um, build
2: community capacity, you mean, excuse me, get get more labor from the community itself, get more uh, sources of labor from the community.
0: Yeah, exactly, and make investments in in local community groups who are working on these issues and who really know the landscapes and who have values that they want to protect and have vision around it. Um, so, you know, I don't think we're going to – if we just throw money at technology and more helicopters and – more fire engines that, that's not going to get us where we need to go i think we really need to have a more holistic approach and it can't just be about fuels management and just about prescribed fire it really needs to be about all different aspects of community resilience and planning and um you know post-fire recovery and all of these pieces need to be part of it
2: Melania quinn davidson again is area fire advisor with the uc cooperative extension and our next caller is david from napa david welcome you're on the air
7: Thank you. Two questions. How would one coordinate a prescribed burning strategy in a landscape that's got very fragmented ownership, a forested landscape? Second question is chaparral, at least coastal chaparral, needs a long burn interval, and if too frequent burning leads to invasives and and it sends things off in a wrong direction. So how would one coexist with a chaparral ecosystem that has a lot of fuel and needs a long burn interval.
2: Can I go to you on these two, Craig Thomas?
4: Certainly. Um, You know, in terms of Chaparral, I, I, you know, what, what I understand from reading the literature is um, it has in a lot of places, it has a very different fire regime. And, you know, unfortunately we've packed a lot of people into those landscapes and um, that really shouldn't have subdivisions in them. And then you ask CAL FIRE to defend those homes and that's what they're gonna do. So we, you, we've made some mistakes about where we plant people in terms of where we put them in terms of land use planning. But the caller is absolutely right that uh, you can overburn certain species And then you turn it into a grassland environment that's completely unnatural, which carries more fire. So it's respecting the natural ecosystem and the fire regime and fire frequency based on the science of the people like Scott and professionals, fire ecology colleagues that know these systems pretty well. That's what needs to guide us.
1: Well,
2: let me go to Scott on the other question that that caller raised, and that's the fragmented landscape. Scott, some thoughts from you on that?
3: Yeah, that is a real fundamental issue, and it's a very, very important one. You know, I think it begs to these ideas of cooperatives. You know, Lenya's has worked on this in Humboldt County, where you have multiple land agencies coming together to create a plan together, you know, and get away from this fragmentation and everybody has, you know, um, lands that are basically separated. So it is absolutely going to take a cooperative effort between private, federal, state, Um, local it'll just be a a cooperative and that's why i think this idea that was been brought up about this synergies of community synergies of small communities synergies of groups working together that's the only way you'd ever be able to work on a fire issue in a fragmented landscape
2: and scott i remember talking with you about bark beetles and i'm wondering what your response is to a listener named bruce who writes a few years ago a significant percentage of california's forests were decimated by both drought and beetle infestation those dead trees were never removed from the forest because of the cost. Is this the reason why this year's fires are so intense? What's the solution and who should pay?
3: Well, that's a very good question. And the Creek Fire, unfortunately, in the Southern Sierra, I think is actually one that is showing what can happen. The Creek Fire burns um, you know, outside of Fresno, up in the Sierra Nevada. It is really one of the epicenters of the 2012 to 2015 drought. And it killed hundreds of millions of trees. Um, Some of those trees were removed. Others were not because of just access and other issues and um, other infrastructure problems. But as those trees fall through time, through just natural decomposition, wind, they actually get on the ground. They actually become much more worrisome from the fire behavior standpoint. So even though they were standing dead a few years ago, they got all of our attention, including me, all those brown needles, trees everywhere. They're actually not as difficult in a fire situation when they're standing. It's harder to burn, actually. But you get them on the ground, they actually can be very efficient at actually burning. So here we are eight years after the drought or so. Some of those trees are down. And unfortunately, we're seeing some of the consequences, I believe, in the Creek Fire.
2: And here's another historical question. And perhaps you can uh, amplify this somewhat, Scott. Uh, Casey writes, you're wrong about suppressing fires for over 100 years. Private property owners still perform controlled burns up until the 60s and 70s. My parents and extended family did it on our family ranch. But we're talking about actually government's role in this uh, more than those who were doing prescribed burnings And the 60s and 70s really kind of changed everything, didn't they?
3: No, the caller's absolutely right. My predecessor at UC Berkeley, Harold Biswell, he used to work extensively with um, people that had ranches, um, hunting clubs, um, just um, open space. And you're absolutely right. You know, the burning of the fifties and sixties and seventies and the forties was in this state was all dominated by private individuals working on their land. It's amazing. Then I think fragmentation, more urbanization, the woo we starts to creep up. It got very, very difficult after that. But that's a history is absolutely correct. You know, we had a system that was working on the private side at the same time, the federal side was basically not moving at all.
2: That's really what we've been talking about, is the federal side because of President Trump coming to california and not the agencies weren't necessarily thinking the best way to care for the land and how best to uh, make it sustainable uh let me also go to a uh, caller named kathy next and kathy joins us welcome
5: hi uh this is kathy in palo alto hi kathy um i wanted to add i'm sorry a little bit more uh maybe more issues to, to the conversation. In, um, recently, Douglas Tallamy has pointed out, an entomologist has pointed out, that we're starving the insect populations, and that in turn is starving the birds. And this is coming about for a number of reasons, but one of them is the fragmentation of, of the landscape and um, the wide prevalence of lawns. And he is suggesting that we uh, we citizens, uh, particularly people who have um, uh, wide open land, uh, repopulate it with native species to feed the insects and allow a, a continuous uh, landscape for them, a continuous corridor across the United States so that they can thrive and we in turn can thrive. This is vital for us. So here in California, with the fires, um, to do such a thing, uh, we have to take into account this issue of fire. And I would like to hear the panelists' comments on um, how I'm, I'm trying to do native gardening in around where I am and trying to grow the species um, that are helpful, the cornerstone species in particular, um, some of which can be trees. There are particularly oaks in particular. Um, so anyway, I'd like to hear the panelists uh, comments on how we in California, if they have any thoughts on how we can do this, or whether this even makes sense for us given the the. Yeah, sure Catherine. Thank I... you.
2: Thank you for that question. Appreciate that. Let me. Can I go to you, Lenya Quinn Davidson?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't know about the insight issue that she's talking about, but I do think she brings up a, a great point. And it's something that you hear um, some of our Indigenous partners talk about and in the context of fire, which is that there are so many pieces of the puzzle that we don't understand. And when we take fire out of the system, there are a lot of things we lose without even knowing it. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of using fire as a restoration tool in a place where we know it helped shape the system is that we can bring back some of those minute details that we're not even necessarily aware of. So um, I think that's a really important part of using fire in this landscape.
2: And I thank the caller and uh, Craig Thomas, uh, get a response from you uh, from a caller or listener named Nate who writes, I've heard environmental scientists say forest fires are considered net zero carbon generators because the empty landscapes left behind quickly began absorbing carbon during regeneration.
4: Well, um, you know, the, that point of view is interesting, but what the system was before European Americans showed up here, and, and I don't want to overstate this, but it contained a, a large number of larger, older fire resilient trees. And it had fire mostly, not all the time, but mostly operating in the understory. So when we look at resilience, we have to be careful that what we picture is dynamic. There's always been fire and emissions in California, and it's a matter of stability and equilibrium to where we get to the point where we have the co-benefits that we appreciate and enjoy and need for our survival and how that system operates. So if you just, as the previous caller mentioned, you know, about plants and how do we cope with fire? Well, fire is a major factor in biodiversity. It's, we call it pyrodiversity. So it's, it, instead of thinking of it as destructive based on all the media video we've been watching and horror, um, think about it as regenerative and renewing these landscapes and bringing back the health to the system that we recognize. And you, you know, there's always this big question about how far back do you go to look for some sort of target? Well, you know, if you think about Yosemite Valley, well, once it was covered in glaciers. So, I mean, you have to think about what we know about the system that we've inherited in recent time and how the native people were living here and what science is telling us today. And th- those are the things that, that really matter. And, You know, I'll I'll refer, and Scott's familiar with this paper. There's a couple of recent papers have recently come out. One of them looked at 1,000 fires in the Sierra Nevada over a 30-plus-year period. And what they found was the most resilient structure remaining from all of those fires was a fairly small patch scale of diversity from one stand condition to another. So fire is telling us what to do.
2: Well, it's alarming, the build-up we've seen of uh, kindling, it's a tinderbox, and the hotter climate makes the forest drier, and that's what we're facing, and we're facing a terrible backlog, as we said, but it's been really good having the three of you on, because I think you've put some positive lights on this, and some ways that people can actually combat the kind of thing that we are facing here, and I think... Our guests, Scott Stevens, Lenya Quinn-Davidson, and Craig Thomas for being with us. And thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, with an hour repeated 10 to 11 in the evening. Nine, uh, Excuse me, 10 to 11 in the evening. Thank you for being a part of this morning's forum program. And for all of us here, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.